This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. It's Tuesday, June 14th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, the history and future of the design of the American shopping mall. Plus, a new test that can more accurately assess your immunity to COVID-19. And Coca-Cola is releasing a new Jack and Coke canned cocktail. Meanwhile, fans have created a healthy Coke hack, which I tried out in the first ever Cool Stuff Ride Home taste test. Here is some cool stuff for your ride home. When's the last time you went to the mall? Not just to pick up a couple of things at specific stores, but to actually spend time hanging out in the food court, window shopping, and meeting up with people. I might be a little biased because malls are more rare in New York City. Manhattan doesn't really lend itself to the monolith that is the suburban mall, but it doesn't seem like people just hang out at the mall in the same way they used to, at least not in a way that defines a culture like the mall did in the late 80s and early 90s. In fact, malls these days are sometimes viewed as a bit of a dying breed. Thanks to online shopping, many of them have literally shuttered their doors, and a lot of people would say good riddance. But a new book out today from architecture critic Alexandra Lang called Meet Me by the Fountain, an inside history of the mall, defends the iconic institution in several ways that I at least hadn't quite thought of before, and offers some ideas about what might be to come, how we can make magic again from, quote, the dystopian husk of an abandoned shopping center that has become one of our era's defining images, end quote. The defining image of our era could arguably be that husk of an abandoned shopping mall, but for previous eras, it was the shopping mall in its prime. And those early designs of malls have their origins in a bit more of a highbrow place than the overwhelming consumerism of it all may lead you to believe. Lang positions the origins of mall architecture, at least, in 19th century European conservatories, huge tall buildings with glass roofs housing non-native plants. This trend led to the famous Crystal Palace in London, built for the Great Exhibition of 1851 and designed by the English architect Joseph Paxton. Quoting from an excerpt of Lang's Meet Me by the Fountain, published today in the New York Times, The Crystal Palace's barrel-vaulted glass roof sheltered elm trees, as well as natural and human-made goods from around the world, exhibited in booths and browsed by six million visitors. The connection between glass architecture, plants, and shopping was further developed by department stores that proliferated in European and American cities in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. The grandest of these were organized around central light courts, where plants would soften the lines of iron staircases and eventually escalators, end quote. And when the earliest malls began in earnest, innovators like Victor Gruen intentionally decorated them with plants and water features to emphasize the luxury of climate control and year-round good weather of indoor shopping. And as the mall evolved over the years, one population that took particular advantage of that luxury of climate control was mall walkers. 
You might be familiar with these kinds of people. They're the ones who lace up their tennis shoes and get their steps in by doing brisk laps around the mall instead of through local trails or on a track. It's a recreational activity that dates back at least to the 1980s and has spawned countless casual clubs and meetup groups, though no formal athletic federation. Mall walkers tend to get their exercise in during early hours of a mall's operation. Some malls even open early just for walkers, so you may not have encountered them if your prime mall time was after school or midday on the weekends. And it could be easy to judge a mall walker. You know, who would want to walk inside under fluorescent lights, surrounded by blaring consumerism and bumping into crowds of errand-goers, when you could take a nice stroll through a meadow or around a quiet city block? Well, for people who live near tranquil and safe places to walk, maybe that would be a better option. But Lang points out in an excerpt published last week in Bloomberg that malls, it turns out, offer a far more accessible and safe space for many people than anywhere else in their towns. Malls have flat, open walkways, no uneven sidewalks, and wide enough for mobility aids. They're climate-controlled, so you don't have to worry about heat waves, rain, or snowstorms. There are ample benches and free bathrooms, and with so many other people around, including employees and often security guards, they're relatively safe compared with walking solo outdoors, especially for women. And while the original mall designers didn't have mall walkers in mind, all of those perks were by design. As Lang writes, quote, The mall was always intended as a protected space, its stores and spaces targeting suburban women and children at home during the day and isolated from walkable downtowns. For the more vulnerable among us, malls' privately owned and privately managed amenities offer an on-or-off ramp from the real world, sometimes literally. Skateboarders and wheelchair users both appreciate the fact that most malls were built to include ramps, escalators, and elevators, or have been retrofitted to do so. On Twitter, city planner Amina Yazin praised malls as spaces that accommodate many racialized and even unhoused senior citizens, offering free and low-cost-of-entry access to air conditioning, bathrooms, and exercise, while throwing up her hands that white urbanism decided malls are evil, end quote. Lang also quoted Gabriel Peters, a writer and former member of the city of Vancouver's Active Transportation and Policy Council, as writing, quote, There's a lot wrong with malls in terms of accessibility and because they are private property and the whole consumerism thing, but the mall also has a lot to teach urbanism, end quote. Lang explains how malls can function as more effective or enlivening community centers than spaces actually set up for that, like public libraries or senior centers. For example, many seniors like spending time at mall food courts because, unlike at a senior center, they get to see people of all ages and feel more a part of society instead of siloed off. You know, we so often associate malls with teenagers, who similarly are often just looking for a relatively safe place to hang out for longer periods of time without having to spend money. But malls serve so many more members of the community than just the youths. Still, the pop cultural consciousness of malls tends to evoke scenes from movies like Clueless, Mallrats, and Fast Times at Ridgemont High. 
And as malls have become less of a cultural force and more of, as Lang put it, that dystopian husk, there's been a predictable nostalgic revival for mall culture lately, helped along no doubt by Netflix series like Stranger Things and Fear Street, the latter of which levels a pretty strong message about how different generations of teenagers spent their downtime by showing a particular location depicting a beloved tree at a summer camp in the 70s, which was then paved over by a shop mall in the 90s. But again, maybe the mall was a safer place for teenagers to spend their time than running wild through the woods. I know my hometown underwent a similar transformation in the early 90s. Acres upon acres of farmland, where teenagers before me might have got their kicks after school, turned into strip malls, chain restaurants, cookie-cutter housing, and eventually, in 1997, a much-hyped, state-of-the-art, one-million-square-foot mall. Now, we were pretty stoked about it at the time. It was highly themed, a single-story, mile-long loop, perfect for all those mall walkers. It had a Virgin Records and a Rainforest Cafe, a futuristic arcade, and a new movie theater that, for a time, was among the largest megaplexes in the world. Going to the mall was still the thing to do growing up, but by the time I got my first summer job working at the mall in high school, the shine was already starting to fade. And that mall of my youth will soon be home to a permanent, immersive art experience riffing on that nostalgia factor for shopping malls in their heyday. The art collective Meow Wolf, known for their out-of-this-world walkthrough exhibition Portals in Santa Fe, Denver, and Las Vegas, recently announced this new location inside of my hometown's old mall. As Dale Sheehan, the executive creative director of Malwolf, explained in the decision to open an exhibition inside of a suburban mall in a town most people haven't heard of, quote, We'll be leaning into the energy of a shopping center, a nostalgic place for many of us, where families gather and young adults often find their first moments of freedom, end quote. I seriously can't think of anything more weirdly ironic happening to the mall of your youth than having it be turned into an immersive artistic commentary on the golden age of malls. But apart from the immersive exhibit opening in 2023, that particular mall is still going strong as a shopping center. But about a quarter of malls across the U.S. are expected to close in the next three to five years, according to Lang. And the big question is becoming, what to do with these cavernous spaces? During the pandemic, we saw many retrofitted as COVID testing locations and vaccine sites. I've heard of some becoming sites for classes and even full-on schools and churches. And for all the reasons mentioned before that malls are accessible spaces, they can also evolve pretty seamlessly as community spaces in one way or another. Here's Lang's take, quote, Some should be demolished and returned to nature, but more should be rethought from an ecological point of view. While malls are a wasteful use of land, replacement with new, standalone buildings with space-hogging parking lots only compounds that wastefulness. Better to add perimeter buildings, solar panels, trees, and to swap markets for department stores, classrooms for boutiques. Ground cleared and buildings constructed for one kind of community benefit, shopping, could be reduced, reused, and recycled to serve a broader and greener community purpose, with pedestrian open space as part of a mix of public uses. While the mall was designed to showcase products intended for obsolescence, in the best-case scenario, it's also a building designed to change." 
And part of the new solutions to be considered can go back to those original green roots of the mall. And Lang points to former malls across the country that are becoming multi-purpose spaces, incorporating office space, sometimes housing, as well as some shops, and prioritizing green space in their redevelopments. The Valco Shopping Mall in California, for example, is planning a 29-acre green roof, which it claims will be among the world's largest. And another trend has been malls serving more diversified communities and hosting more local businesses as opposed to chains. Quoting again, The whiteness of malls, at least, is changing. The geographer Wei Li coined the term ethnoburb in 1997, studying the rise of majority Asian American suburbs. Willow Lungamam has chronicled the rise of shopping centers and malls curated for this demographic, and formerly white-serving malls across the South have been reborn as mercados, offering Latinx food, fashion and entertainment, and fulfilling other community service functions. And what these Asian and Latin American projects have in common is a responsiveness to changing residential patterns and a willingness to support local business. Displays of creative management beyond attracting the latest hot national brand. End quote. So even though malls might not seem like the coolest place in town anymore, and in some towns may even look like a dystopian husk, it seems like many of them are actually being refocused in quite positive directions. And despite what I would have thought, it seems like the malls are all right. Continuing on the why it is that some people just never get COVID train, a new study published yesterday in the journal Nature Biotechnology describes a new test that's been developed that can assess an individual's immunity to COVID-19. Now, immunity generally, of course, depends on things like being vaccinated, having had COVID-19 previously, other medical conditions or medications that might weaken your immune system, the suspected natural immunity some folks may have, etc., and while antibody tests can give a rough idea of a person's immunity to COVID-19 at the time of testing, showing antibody levels that we believe last for only a few months, this new blood test measures T-cells to determine immunity. T-cells are white blood cells that work with antibodies to mount an immune response, and cellular immunity can last up to a year. So testing both in conjunction could give someone a much stronger idea of their potential immunity or lack thereof. And more than just an individual's curiosity or risk assessment, the researchers say that this kind of data could help inform our revaccination strategies, giving us a better idea of how often we might really need booster shots. As time notes, T-cell testing for SARS-CoV-2 is not new, but it usually takes a lot of time and energy to conduct. This newly published study developed a simplified tool that can return results in less than 24 hours. Quoting Time, their process starts with mixing a person's blood sample with material from the SARS-CoV-2 virus. If there are T-cells specific to SARS-CoV-2 in the blood, they'll react to the viral material and produce a substance that can be detected via polymerase chain reaction, or PCR technology, like that used to run COVID-19 diagnostic tests. Measured levels of that compound serve as a proxy for cellular immunity. End quote. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration is currently reviewing the tool, but it is already in use in Europe. Though, again, this wouldn't so much be a test that can give you an all-clear to go to a large indoor concert believing you're immune. It's more of another tool we have in our arsenal as we continue to learn more about immunity to the virus and how long it lasts. Widespread T-cell testing could provide scientists with more data to start cracking some of the virus's mysteries. As co-author Ernesto Guccione told Time, quote, with large numbers comes clarity. 
That's the hope. By using this test, we can finally get those numbers that were totally unavailable with the previous technology. End quote. Coca-Cola's been putting out all kinds of weird flavors this year. Coca-Cola Starlight that tastes like space, and Coca-Cola Bite that tastes like pixels. I have yet to try either, but honestly appreciate the goofiness of both of them and Coke's refusal to describe the flavor profiles in any sensical way. Coca-Cola's latest debut, though, might be a legitimate hit, if only because it's just a canned version of a tried-and-true beverage. Coca-Cola just teamed up with Jack Daniels to sell a pre-mixed canned Jack and Coke. Quoting Thrillist, The canned Jack and Coke will come at an average of 5% ABV, though that will vary based on regulations in the various markets where the product will be released. A zero-sugar version of the canned cocktail will also be available. This is the ultimate beverage for someone who wants the portability of a can, but who prefers the comfort of a familiar favorite. End quote. The official canned Jack and Coke will launch in Mexico later this year, with a global release planned later. And according to Thrillist, Jack Daniels has actually released a few canned cocktails in the past, including a whiskey and cola flavor, but there is no denying the powerhouse of the two original companies that gave the drink its name. And with canned cocktails rising in popularity right now, I actually think this could be a relative slam-dunk move for both companies. In unofficial Coca-Cola news, though, have you heard about Healthy Coke? Popularized by TikToker Amanda Jones, who said she was recommended it by her Pilates instructor, apparently people have been putting balsamic vinegar in their seltzer and claiming that it tastes just as good as a real Coca-Cola. Yeah. Over at The Guardian Australia, a number of staff members did a taste test, and only one of them said they could see how it tastes a bit like a Coke. Most of them said it was an acquired taste or were disgusted by it, and even if they liked it, didn't quite get where the Coca-Cola comparison was coming from. I decided to try it out myself with a probably expired bottle of balsamic vinegar I found in my fridge, and I didn't get it. Honestly, I thought I might like it because I like vinegary things, but it was just not good. <laughs> I put a couple splashes of balsamic vinegar in the seltzer, and it didn't taste like much at all, so I added more, and then it was just awful. It tasted like just drinking salad dressing on its own. And maybe I did something wrong, I don't know, but I do wish I had one of those cans of Jack and Coke already to chase it down with. If you want my full review of Healthy Coke, I will post the reaction video on my Twitter and Instagram at JackIsNotABird. But as for if this Healthy Coke is actually healthy, I mean, if you're using straight-up seltzer without any sugar or additives, then you're saving yourself some sugar grams and nixing the caffeine, but oral health Specialist Dr. Michaela Chinodi told The Guardian that the acidity of both carbonated water and balsamic vinegar will wear down tooth enamel. She said, quote, I don't know where they're getting the healthy part from. Nowhere does anybody recommend to drink either of these things for your health, let alone mixing them together. End quote. 
But as for some people being grossed out by the vinegar element, I mean, it's for sure an acquired taste that isn't for everyone, but it's also not a new thing invented by some TikToker and her Pilates instructor. Korea, for example, has an entire beverage category of drinking vinegars, and elsewhere in the world there are drinks like shrubs, cordials, and kombucha, all of which incorporate vinegar or vinegar-like elements, and all of which I am also personally quite a big fan of. But somehow, this healthy Coke just didn't do it for me. And I do have a feeling that Coca-Cola Extra Vinegar is probably not going to be included in Coke's next lineup, despite how much weirder they've been getting lately. Alright, well that is going to be it from me for today. I gotta go guzzle some mouthwash to get this balsamic vinegar taste out of my mouth. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.